What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney JT McCormick is the president and CEO of Scribe Media a publishing company that's created an entirely new way for you to write a book JT is the author of I Got There How I Overcame Racism Poverty and Abuse to Achieve the American Dream In this episode, you'll learn about his leadership strategies, why he says fail fast is ridiculous, learn faster, and what his three P's are for running a business. Buckle your seatbelt for this fast-paced episode of What Got You There. If you're listening to this podcast, there is a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. 10,000 makes three types of shorts for every way you train. The interval short that's built for versatility and mobility and perfect if you're into a bit of everything. It comes with an optional built-in liner that's the perfect compression without being too tight. It's made from super fine Italian fabrics. Ooh, fancy. So it's not just functional, but more comfortable without losing any support. And you need that support. The foundation short that's built for durability and perfect for anything with barbells, strength training, or even a weekend adventure. The distance short, my personal favorite, it's a super lightweight short, breathable, and built for running. Also with a built-in liner, these shorts fade away while you run. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. JT, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Uh, I am excellent. Every day is an excellent day. If you wake up in the morning, your feet hit the ground, damn it, you better be excellent. I think the listeners already know what they're in for just by your response right there. I think we need to get them warmed up a little bit before we dive into your story. It's a pretty intense one. So how do you start your day? So my day starts the same every day. I wake up at 4 a.m. and the first thing I do is pray, give give thanks, uh, have to get my gratitude in. And then I head to the gym. After the gym, I do a little bit of study on leadership, business, growth, scale, all, all things business. Then I have breakfast with the family, help get the kids ready for school, and then I take it to the office, man. And so that's that's the way the morning starts every day, even on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, with the exception of Sunday, I don't go to the gym. But even on Saturdays, my my morning starts the same way. I mean, you are pretty dialed in here. Have you been doing this exact same routine for years? For for quite a while, I, I have found that when you 
I, I'm a big fan on structure and routine. I know some people may call that boring. Some people may call it mundane, but I come from a background of absolute chaos. So what some people would call boring and mundane, I call phenomenal to, to know that I come home to to my my loving wife every day. You know, some people want to go to the the bar afterwards. Someone want to go to to happy hour. I love knowing what I'm coming home to each day. I just I, I thrive on on structure and routine. Yeah, I'm very similar in terms of how I've structured my life around structure and the benefits I've received from that. Are you ever just tired and dead exhausted at 4 a.m. and not want to get up? You know, I, I, Sean, I'm, I'm human, you know, so there's days where the alarm goes off and yeah, you know, I, I want to hit snooze. I want to go back to sleep. If it gets a little chilly here in Austin, you know, I want to stay under, under the covers. But, you know, on the days that I have that happen to me, I, I sit there for five seconds and I say to myself, OK, right now there's a person with cancer in a hospital bed somewhere that's never going to leave that hospital bed. And they would give anything, anything to just get on their own two feet and walk to the restroom and have the dignity to use the restroom rather than lay in the bed and use the restroom. And when I say that to myself, oh, man, getting up at 4 a.m. becomes real easy because I say to myself, "Okay, all I have to do now is get out of bed and go achieve my goals and dreams. I'm not stuck in a hospital bed with cancer. I'm not trying to cross the border from Mexico into Texas. I'm blessed. I have this this great fortune and this ability and I'm healthy. Get your ass out of bed. Yeah, when you take that perspective, that, that's gonna light a fire up under you. That's very cool to hear. What about your evening routine? Is there anything you do to unwind, maybe just get yourself ready so you can have a successful next day? You know, the last thing that I try to do right before I go to bed is I look at my calendar for the next day just to know, okay, what do I have upcoming? What do I have to focus on? Or is there anything I want to think about in bed before I go to sleep? That's the very last thing that that I do before I, I get into bed. Uh, then, you know, I'll talk to my wife a little bit and then we'll, we'll go to sleep. But that's really how my evening ends. You know, be, before I look at that calendar, I get in bed, man, I've, I've got four little ones, man. I got a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a one-year-old, and now a newborn. So, you know, it's, it's fun chaos and, and love at my house in the, in the evenings when getting people bathed in bed, reading books and, and just running around. So yeah, it's not as much structure in the evening. <laughs> You've got your hands full. Congratulations on the newborn. Uh, how new? Oh man, two weeks. So wow. he, he's, yeah, he's, he's, what the hell are you doing on this call? <laughs> man, he's 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 brand new little guy to the to the world. So yeah, man, it's you know, some people say, Oh my god, you have four kids, how do you do it? And I, I say to them, look, everyone has a meal to eat. Everyone has a roof over their head. We have health care and, and we're financially well off. So for me, out, outside of that, I mean, you know, everything else is easy. Yeah, I, I got no worries. Man, you just know how to bring everything into a fresh perspective. I think more people need to be living their life through that lens. There's only 24 hours in a day. You mentioned breaking up your, your day. What's that look like? How do you divide your time? Are you pretty particular about how you structure that? I am. It went, when I'm, I gave you the morning piece, and then when I'm at the office, I, I'm all in. I'm going hard. I'm doing my best to, to be 100% dialed in. Uh, you know, making decisions, sitting in meetings, you know, on calls, whatever the case may be that, that comes with with the growth of our, our company. 
And then when I get home, I, I do my best to put the phone down and be engaged with it with the family. You know, I've I've got this two week old now and I've got a five year old. And, and, you know, when I look at the two of them, it seems like yesterday that my five year old was the newborn. So my my children are a human calendar on how fast time truly goes. And so I do my best to to capture every little moment of, you know, sitting on the couch, reading a book, even when we're sitting at the dinner table, asking my children, how was school? What, what did you learn today? What's your favorite thing? Because those moments will go so fast. I want to be engaged with, with my family. And more importantly, and, I, and I'll say this, I also want to be engaged with my wife because, you know, my children eventually one day will grow up and they'll move out and they'll have their own families. But I want to make sure that uh, my, my wife and I still have a phenomenal relationship because once those children leave, it's it's just my wife and I. And I want to make sure that we didn't become so engaged with just the children that we lost track of our relationship. It sounds like you have a great grasp on that work-life balance. I know a lot of people don't like that term. You're hearing that a lot right <laughs> now with people such as Elon Musk just talking about the crazy amount of hours he works. What's your take on all that? So, man, I, 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 I'm going to do my best here not to piss off some of your, your listeners, but I, I find... Hey, piss off whoever you want. Voice, <laughs> voice your opinions here. Man, work-life balance, the term, you you nailed it, man. It's become this hot term, and I call 100% bullshit on the term. And here's why. Whenever you say work-life balance to anyone, immediately they go to the work part uh, of the equation. They start talking about the, the four-day work week. You know, don't work 50, 60 hours. Put your phone down at, at night. Everything is work, work, work focused when you say work-life balance. Why I call bullshit is no one's focusing on the balance of life. You can't go eat shit all the time and stay in shape and take care of your health. You can't go to the bar Thursday through Sunday and accomplish your dreams and goals. You can't go and binge watch Friday through Sunday Game of Thrones and then bitch because you've not achieved your dream and dreams and goals. So I find it fascinating that when people say work-life balance, you never hear anyone talking about life balance. And so for me, you, you ask my opinion, I boil my life down to five areas, God, health, family, business, and investing. If it doesn't fall within those five categories, I'm not in. And you know, I, I love golf, love golf, but golf takes about four hours to play around. Do I wanna have that four hours with my family? Do I wanna take that four hours for studying my craft, leadership, investing, or do I wanna go play a round of golf? So I, I boil my life down and the balance of my life are those five areas. So I don't look at it as a work-life balance. I look at it as a life balance because work is obviously a big part of your life. Yeah, it's gonna be tough to, to have a beneficial life to both yourself and the ones around you if you're not enjoying your work, which is what's probably taking up the most amount of hours in your day. I'm sure the listeners are warmed up now. We can dive into this backstory. It sure as hell was not an easy one. Let's start <laughs> the origin story. What was life like growing up? Oh, man, you know, that's an open-ended question for me. <laughs> I want to see where you take it. Uh, you, you tell where, where did you just want me to dive in on what I came into the world to? I, I want to know, when I ask that question, you think back to your childhood, that origin story, what comes to mind? 
Chaos. I, I was born into complete chaos. My my father was a, a black pimp and drug dealer in the 1970s, and my mother uh, w- was a white orphan. So I'm half black, half white. And my mother was raised in a children's home, a, a, an old school 1950s uh, orphanage. And so I also don't know where my last name comes from. I have my mother's last name. She was given that last name in the orphanage, but we have no clue where, why this this last name exists. So I was born into complete chaos. My mother was nothing but a, a little girl when she was given $20, her suitcase, and she left the orphanage and they told her good luck. And unfortunately for her, she met my fast talking, well-dressed uh, pimp father. And, you know, here, here I am. So it, it's, you know, I grew up on welfare in, in extreme poverty. When I say extreme poverty, let, let me be specific here. U.S. poverty, because on the worst day of how I grew up, it's nothing compared to what other countries uh, go through as far as poverty is concerned. So I, I grew up U.S. poor is what I always tell people. Um, and you know, I was in and out of juvenile three different times as a child. I uh, was sexually molested by one of my uh, father's prostitutes from the ages of six through eight, five, six, seven, eight. And I don't have a college degree, never graduated high school, had to, had to go to summer school to take remedial courses to get my high school diploma. And, and some people would say, well, that's a GED. Damn it. It says high school diploma on it. So I got a high school diploma. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's I mean, obviously, there's a, a, a lot more detail there, but high level, man, I, I come from total chaos. Total chaos. I'm thinking a lot of the listeners right now can't even comprehend going through that, experiencing what you have experienced. And one of the things that really hit me is how you said you grew up in U.S. poverty, where you still have that perspective. Out of all the chaos you endured, so many people have it so much worse. But I feel like a lot of people who go through similar things that you did think they had it worse than anyone. How do you have that perspective? Oh, man, you know, it's it's taking time to look at life and look at this world outside of yourself. And, you know, right, let's, let's, let's really dig into this right now. Right now, there's a husband and wife with two children, three children, and they're standing on the banks of Syria and they're about to get on a blow up raft to, to, to flee the country. And they're gonna risk their lives and their, their children's lives to get across the sea just to flee the country. They, they may not even have anything waiting on them other than the clothes on their backs. Man, on my worst day, or take, take the, the, the horrific sexual abuse I faced, take the, the poverty of being hungry and eating out of trash cans, take all of those things. Mother of God, I was still born in this country. I am still a U.S. citizen. There is someone trying to cross the border of Mexico to Texas right now. And if they do get in, all they receive is, guess what? You got in. You still need to find a job. You still need to find shelter. You still, you don't speak the language. So I look at my life and say, hey, you know what? I'm still blessed regardless of what I went through as a child. Man, I was born in this country. I really appreciate you setting the context, letting the listeners 
really understand who JT is. I mean, you're the perfect guest for this podcast because you, your book, I Got There, How a Mixed Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty, and Abuse to Arrive at the American Dream. I want the listeners to pick the book up to really dive into more of your stories. And I want to know how you took some of these lessons, what you experienced, and how you did good with your life. So what was the writing process like for that book? I mean, that is a heavy book to uncover. It was it was very difficult and, and straightforward. Uh, I'll even tell you how the book came to be. I was traveling and I don't like to fly and I hit a lot of turbulence and it really shook me up. And I thought to myself, wow. And this is when I just had two children at the time. I thought to myself, if something happened to me, my children would not know my backstory. And I've always been intrigued by the Rockefeller family, the, the, the Ford family, the Kennedys, who can trace six, seven, eight generations. Man, I can't track 30 minutes. And so <laughs> I, I set out on this mission that I said, OK, I would love to have my book as a legacy piece for my children. So I got introduced to the two co-founders of Scribe. And when they explained to me that the process of doing the book was to actually speak my book, that I didn't have to do any writing, I thought, oh, well, this Brett's right up my alley. But it was very difficult because, one, there were memories that came back that I had buried, that I swore were going to go into the bottom of the ocean and no one would ever know. So it was very – it was somewhat therapeutic. It was stressful. It was difficult. And what one of the hardest things was I had never planned to make my book public because of the stories that that were in there. I spent a lifetime not wanting people to know who who I was, who I am. And so the, the book was originally just for my children. And through a lot of support, encouragement from those closest to me, they said, look, you're doing a disservice to society if you don't make your book public. And I, I chose to, to make the book public by way of the, the encouragement and the support. But it was very difficult because, like I said, there's stories in that book that I swore were chained up in a safe in the bottom of the Atlantic somewhere. And so it, it was it was challenging. I mean, how long did that take till you finally made that decision that you were actually going to release this book publicly? Probably about nine months, you know, shortly after we started the book is when people, when they started hearing the stories were saying, my God, you, you got to make this public. And I'm like, yeah, no, that's not happening. It's, this is, <laughs> I, I, I need five copies to pass down to my children, my grandchildren and my great, great, great grandchildren. I go, that's, that's not happening. And so it was about a nine month process. And in fact, when the book was completed, I still delayed sat on for 90 days, three months, where I was really hesitant and struggled with making the book public. And, and a lot of the reason was because people were now going to know who Javon McCormick is and, and was. So I, I go by JT, but as you go through the book, you'll find out why I go by Javon. And so many people I knew would pick up this book and say, wait a minute, I thought he had a degree. Wait a minute. I thought he had a, a master's. Wait a minute. I thought he was Hispanic, Latino, Italian, whatever. And people were now going to discover I was whatever I needed to be to get to wherever I wanted to go. So if you thought I was Latino, damn it, I was Latino. If you thought <laughs> I was Italian, I was Italian. If you thought I had an MBA, I had an MBA. So it, it's. 
that book was very, it, it was tough to, to release, but I, I'm glad I, I did. I've been blown away, humbled, flattered by the response from the book. And, and I, I'm very happy I did, especially when I find out the amount of youth and, and children, teens that the book ha, has touched. That's been what I've appreciated the most. That's very cool to hear. You mentioned the company you went to to help write the book, Scribe. You're currently the president and CEO of the company. We're going to get to both what the company does and how you got in that position. But I want to know, right when you finally grow up slightly, you're a little bit older, how do you even begin getting into the business world with your background? Oh, wow. So fortunately for me, my, my I, I was scrubbing toilets at a restaurant and my mother was working at an insurance company and she had a, a very low level, low paying job. But she said, hey, an, a, a position came available in the mailroom and my role was going to be to push a cart around and deliver mail and things of that nature. So I, I went and applied and I ended up getting the, the job. So it was my first look into corporate America. I was I was 18 years old and I remember I was just blown away at how people interacted to the point where I outside of a, of a, a pimp, I had never seen a black man in a suit before. And here I was, this was this this vice president he had on a suit. And so I really it opened my eyes and I paid attention to how how do these people interact? How does everyone shake hands, greet one another? And here's what's really funny. My first job, I made ten thousand dollars a year, a year. And so it's that was my, my first experience into to corporate America. So what transpires next? Was that the company that you went from that position and then in three years became president? No. So I went from there. I'll, I'll, I'll go pretty rapid here. I went from there into payday loans and a gentleman had given me an opportunity in payday loans. And what intrigued me is he only had a high school diploma. And I thought, well, wow, he, he had started out with one payday loan company and now he had over 400 of them. And I was just blown away. Like, wow, okay, well, he did it. Well, damn it, I can do it. And so I went and worked for him for three years. That was a great opportunity. Uh, I was 23 years old and he gave me, well, I, I worked my way into the opportunity. No one's ever given me anything. If you hired me, you hired me because you had a need and I fulfilled that need because I could have easily flamed out. So I, I always hesitate to say anyone gave me an opportunity. No one gave me anything. You may have cracked the door, but I had to kick it in. So I, I was able to move to Oregon, was a vice president of a payday loan company at the age of 23 stayed there for three years, came back to Texas, uh, ended up getting into mortgages, all things mortgages. It was it was a great career. And then when the credit crisis hit, a lot of hit, I, I ended up broke, no money, right back at zero square one where I started and ended up working at a, a software company where I was the lowest paid person and I made my calls out of a storage closet. I was employee number 13. I was the lowest paid and I made my calls out of a storage closet. And over the course of five years, 
we ended up growing that company from the storage closet to uh, offices in Austin, Houston, Dallas, and Monterey, Mexico with over a, a hundred people. And I went from the lowest paid to the president of the company over that time period. So lowest paid to the president of the company. I mean, that just sounds like a great success story, but I really want to know, I mean, how the hell do you do that? And I first want to go back to a quote <laughs> you just said, you may have cracked the door, but I kicked it in. I think that kind of sets the mindset of what you had when you were the lowest on the totem pole at that company. You know, it's anything that I've ever done, I wanted to find out, okay, who was the best in the position? Who was the best in the role? And that became my target. Okay, I want to outproduce that individual. Nothing personal, I just want to be number one. And it's interesting, when I hear this from salespeople sometimes, salespeople will say, uh, JT, you've got any advice for me? You know, I, I want to be, you know, great in my role. And, and they'll have the audacity to say, I'm one of the top salespeople. Well, unless you're number one, I, who cares if you're one up? I mean, it's it's sales. The measurement is who's closing the most. And, and what's really amazing to me is when I hear salespeople say, I'm one of the top. And then I say, okay, well, how many are at the company? And they'll say nine. I go, okay, so that, that means nothing. <laughs> And it, it's interesting. I said this the other day and I caught some, some heat for it, but you know what? I, I meant it, so I'm going to say it again. 90% of all salespeople suck. And if you're offended by the comment, you fall in the 90%. <laughs> so, you know, how, how did it happen? Uh, I, I worked my ass off. I, I've always been willing to do what others aren't. And so you just said it. Sounds like an amazing success story, but very few people will ask me the details of how that happened. And very few people are willing to do what I did to make it happen. So let me preface this first and say, one of the ways I was able to be that successful is I was surrounded by an incredible group of people, talented beyond talent was at the company as far as the software engineers are concerned. So in many ways, they made it very easy for me to succeed. Now, my part in the equation was of the five years I was at the software company, I only took 11 days vacation. Now, you know as well as I do, most people take 11 days vacation in Q1. I took 11 <laughs> days vacation the whole time I was there. Three of those days were for when I got married. Two were for the birth of my firstborn. One was for the birth of my, my secondborn. And my wife used to joke, she goes, my God, if we have a third, what are you just gonna leave at lunch? And so, it, but you know, and then there was a few little days here and there that, that I took. But my point being is I was always willing to do what others weren't willing to do. I, I've never been afraid of, of hard work. I've never been afraid to put in the extra hours. And that's, that is really the, the recipe uh, of my success. I live by a formula. It's called hard work, um, mindset choices and hard work equals success. That's the formula I live by. So you mentioned hard work a lot. I'm curious, how do you view your processing power? How smart are you? What are you capable of? Or is it more you just grind it out? Well, you know, obviously there's not a whole lot of academic credentials here. So um, it, a lot of it is studying, 
finding out how, how can I learn faster? In, in fact, Sean, it, you know what, what really frustrates me, and I'm gonna go off on a tangent here, I can't stand the term fail fast. Man, I have spent my whole life trying to learn faster to escape my circumstances. Fail fast is ridiculous. The goal is to learn faster. And, and, and in fact, I don't even use the term fail. I've made a ton of mistakes in my personal life. Man, I couldn't hold a relationship to save my life. I was a monster in relationships. I've made a ton of mistakes in, in my, my business life. But I believe you only fail if you stop trying. Now, I got a lot of failed relationships because we broke up and we didn't continue on with the relationship. But as far as getting better in business, as far as becoming better as a person, as a human, as a husband, yeah, you know, I, I make mistakes, but the goal is to learn from your mistakes and not to repeat those mistakes. So I, I refuse to use the term or the phrase fail fast. I, I believe learn faster. We all make mistakes, but here's the key. You only fail if you stop trying. When you're learning faster, how do you even go about that? I mean, are, are you actively seeking out books that teach you how to learn or are you just studying other people who have done it before, learn from what they've done? I, I learn from what they've done. I, I'm seeking out the information I'm looking for. I, I've said this to so many people. I've been the, the, I've had the great fortune to be alive during the internet. And my God, if you want to know something, it's on the internet. <laughs> and where, where I learned how to invest was by way of the internet. When I figured out that you can turn $100 into 1,000, 1,000 into 10,000, it was all by way of studying, uh, investing on the internet. Uh, balance sheets, income statements, capital expenditures, operational expenditures, EBITDA, everything that I just named off, I learned on the, the internet. Quarterly earnings for publicly traded companies. Do you know that they're, they're, you can pull those up? They're public knowledge for anyone. So a, a company's annual reports on the internet. So anything that I've wanted to learn, I, I've just, I ask questions because the worst thing you can say to me is no, maybe say F no, but it's still no. And for me, I just look at it as, okay, that just means not right now, I'll come back. And everything is just ask questions. Where can I find the information? Who can I study? And, and I'll say this as well, as well. This is funny to me. We live in a society where we, people say we learn the most from our mistakes. But if you go to any blog post, any LinkedIn, whatever, everything you see is Steve Jobs, top three things he does in the morning. Uh, Bill Gates, top five things he does. Top 10 things Jeff Bezos did. Well, where's the top 10 mistake list? I want that list. Because if we truly learn the most from our mistakes, why aren't people sharing their mistakes? So for me, when I teach, coach, mentor within the company, I teach by way of the mistakes that I've made in my life because I feel that's where people are going to learn the most is by way of, okay, what did I do wrong? Maybe we find a top 10 mistake list. We'll include that in the show notes. <laughs> I'm wondering, what's your superpower? Is there something you've identified that you might just be better at than anyone else? I, I 
don't know if it's one thing. I, I don't believe it's ever just one thing that makes someone who they are. I've got maybe two or three. One is I'll ask questions. I'm not afraid to ask for anything. Again, all you can do is say no. And, and people will ask me, how do you, JT, how do you deal with, re re with rejection? And I would say to them, well, when I was in sales, I found it interesting that when I would come home as a, as a kid and I would ask my mother, hey, are we going to eat dinner? She would say no because there was no food. Well, that hurt because I couldn't do anything. I was a child. I couldn't change the outcome. But then when I got became an adult and I got into sales, I realized that, OK, if I cold call this individual and they say no, I got a, a, a list of other people I can keep calling until someone says yes. Damn it. I'm going to find a yes because I can control that outcome. I couldn't control the outcome as a child, but as an adult, man, I'm just gonna keep calling until someone says yes. So for me, I'm not afraid to ask questions. And then two, I'm not afraid to outwork anyone and, and pay very close attention to what I said. I didn't say work harder because there's a whole lot of people who work harder than me. The, the people who landscape here in Texas in August when it's 103 degrees and they're out there cutting grass and things of that nature. Oh yeah, they work harder than me, but I'm results driven. And so I, if someone goes 24, I'll go 25. And, and to that point of what you made earlier, no, I'm not a fan of Elon Musk doing a, a 120 hours a, a week. In fact, if you gotta go 120 hours a week, there's actually something else that, that's really wrong there. Don't get me wrong. There are weeks you need to put in 50, 60, maybe even 70 hours, but that should be a here and now. That should not be a consistent activity that you're doing in your life. You mentioned outworking. I'm wondering, is there anyone you've come across that's been right on your heels in terms of how hard they, they'll work? Oh, man, I, I, I'm going to say this. Boy, you really just called me out on this. <laughs> I, 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 so, so as our company, I'm, I'm going to put this out there. We have had the absolute honor, the privilege that we are, we worked on David Goggins book and I, until I watched the first video of him, I had never in my life said that there was someone who could outwork me. And I have actually brought myself to saying, okay, that's one person who may be able to outwork me. It's even still hard for me to say that he could. So I said he may be able to, but yes, that that's the one person I'm like, wow, that's, that's impressive. Yeah, Goggins is an absolute freak. Anyone unfamiliar with his story, Google Goggins. Some of the stuff that'll come up, you'll be un unbelievably blown away by. Uh, we've gone back and forth, so we're hoping to have him on the show. We talked about Scribe earlier. First, let's set the context. What does Scribe do? You mentioned kind of how you got involved with them, and then I want to know how you worked your way up through there. Oh, wow. So we we turn ideas into books. We We unlock the world's wisdom. So let's say you wanted to do a book on podcasting. Rather than you actually put fingers on the keyboard, we we want you to sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and let us pull that information from you. You're the expert. You have the expertise. So our expertise is writing, structuring a book, and all the things that it takes to create a, a phenomenal book. But you're the expert, and you have your content. We want to take your content, structure it into a book, and publish a great book for you. And the only thing that you don't do is put your fingers on the keyboards. We through through a process of seven months, 
we take your idea and we turn it into a finished product. We do the manuscript, the, the edits, the revisions, the cover design, the interior layout. We get it up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks. We, we can even do the audio book for you. So really what it's allowed people to do in this day and age of where we're all you know short of time, it's a, a big piece of it is ease of use. So all those people wanted to write a book three, five, seven, ten years. Now they can sit back, grab their beverage of choice, let us interview you, let us pull that content, the details that that make for a great book, a great story, and that's how how we we publish the books. And we've done, gosh, we've worked with over a thousand authors now. Up to a thousand. Wow, it, it's no, over. We've worked with over a thousand now. That's absolutely incredible. I remember the first time I heard the concept. So Tucker Max started the company, correct? Correct. Yeah, I mean, he sold what three million copies. He he understands yeah. the book space, but it just seemed so blatantly obvious that so many people need this. Can we walk through what it would look like? So, say I come to you. You mentioned what seven months it takes. What's yeah. the cost for that? And then when you guys are interviewing, how long? How many interviews actually take place? The amount of hours that goes into that. So all in you are going to spend about 40 to 45 hours on the book for over the course of those seven months. Uh, a big piece of that is front loaded in the interviews because that's where we're going to capture your words, your content. And, and keep in mind, the ultimate goal here is that at the end of this process, once we have your book, is for someone to be able to pick your book up and it sounds as if you're reading it to them. So we're not ghost writers. You can't come to us and say, hey, JT, will you go off and write a book on the iPhone? I go do a bunch of research. I put a manuscript together. We slap your name on it. That's not what we do. You're the expert. You have the expertise. We're pulling that information from you and we're putting it in, into the book. So our role is to structure the book, make sure it flows, make sure that it's gr grammatically correct. All the punctuation is in place. That's our, our role is to publish an incredible book for you. Love that. So you mentioned how you initially got connected with Scribe. How do you end up being the president and CEO? <laughs> so I was the president of the software company when I I mentioned to you, I hit a bunch of turbulence and I set out on this mission to, to do my book. And I got introduced to, as you said, Tucker Max. And I'll, I'll give you a funny story with this. In fact, I, shout out to my man, Jason Dorsey, who made the introduction. Jason introduces Tucker and I, or your, your typical email, uh, JT, this is Tucker, Tucker, this is JT, blah, blah, blah. Well, in a separate email, Jason emails me and he says, hey, that's the real Tucker Max. Well, I, I didn't know who he was. So I emailed back to Jason and said, hey, I'm the real JT McCormick. What's up? And so uh, then I obviously went and Googled Tucker and said, excuse my language, man. I said, holy shit. <laughs> you know, and what really the thing that jumped out to me the most was when I read that he was one of three people in the history of the world to have three New York Times bestsellers on the nonfiction list simultaneously, I, I was like, wow, you talk about a hell of an accomplishment. One of three people in the history of the world. I, I was like, okay, kind of knows what he's doing. And so Tucker comes over to the, the office, the software company, he and I sit down and one thing led, led to another. We decided I, I would do my book with this company. And when he's leaving, he says, hey, 
you've built a great company here at the software company. I go, man, I didn't build anything. This was a group effort. This was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears from a lot of people. I just happened to be the president of the company. And so I go, it's never just one person. And he said, well, as you go through our process, can you give me feedback? And I said, yeah, I definitely can do that. Well, he also didn't know at the time I was looking to transition out of the software company. You know, if you haven't figured out by now, I don't write code. So <laughs> it, it was, I wasn't really passionate about it, but I loved it from the business side. And I love what we had accomplished. Well, I ended up, uh, Tucker and I went back and forth. I would give him feedback. And one thing led to another. Woke up one morning, man, I was the president and CEO of Scribe. <laughs> Time yeah. is everything, right? Time, time is everything. And, and, I, and I really sat back and said to myself, wow, one, I would have never been able to complete my book without this company. And then two, I just fell in love with the business model, the culture, all the things that they were doing. The company was only about 15 months old at the time. And you had two guys, there's actually two co-founders, you got Zach and you got Tucker. You had two guys with a phenomenal idea. And, and I'd say this, if they were sitting here with me right now, I've said it to them before, two guys with a phenomenal idea, no damn clue on how to run a company. And so it was just a great fit that I kind of knew a few things and, here we are four years later. So you mentioned no idea how to run, run a company. What was most just beamingly obvious to you that, hey, you guys aren't executing this properly. If we change this, this company is going to be so much more successful. Anything that comes top of mind for you for that? The number one thing was they needed to identify. So I'll, I'll give you a great example. Many companies have the luxury to either be a product company or a service company. We're both. And what I mean by that is we have to provide you with a phenomenal author experience as you go through the process of writing your book. That's the service. But then we also have to provide an incredible product in the book itself. And so they needed to understand that it's not just about the outcome of a great book. You also have to provide people a phenomenal experience as they go through it. And the, the greatest example I give of this is if you and I go out and we build our dream home and we've got this awesome 13,000 square foot house, marble, six car garage, theater, so on and so forth. And we have a, a housewarming party and everyone comes over. Wow, you know, the house is beautiful. It's great. And then someone says, how was your builder? Well, you don't want to hear, oh, God, our builder sucked. Our roof was supposed to be on. He missed it two months uh, that, that we were supposed to have it. The house was supposed to be done six months ago. You don't want that to, ha to happen where you have this high quality product at the end, but the service itself actually sucked. Do you think at that time when Tucker presented you this opportunity, you were absolutely qualified for this? Or was it, hey, I I'm going to learn. I'll make a couple of mistakes, but I'm going to learn quickly on this. You know, I don't I don't know if I would say qualified. Truth be told, man, I, I I will put it out there and say, yes, I have suffered from imposter syndrome many a day when I was the first time president of a software company that didn't write code. Yeah, there were many a day I questioned myself. I, oh, my God, am I supposed to be here? I don't have a college degree. I'm working with people who've worked at NASA. I'm working with people who have multiple master's degrees, PhDs. I, I just happen to love the business aspect of, of companies and all the things that go into it. So 
humbly, I will say, yes, I, I was qualified because I did identify that, okay, the piece that's missing here is you've got to put together a phenomenal experience for people. You've got to have the highest customer service for the, the individuals who are choosing to do their, their book with us. And that part I did understand. What about currently? What are, what are the largest challenges you guys face at Scribe? The number one challenge we have today, we'll have tomorrow, we had two years ago, it's always going to be finding great people. I, I'm a big believer that there's there's three P's that you measure. There's people, process, and profits. Unfortunately, so many people get those out of order. I believe that if you have phenomenal people, you can build phenomenal process and the profits will come. Unfortunately, some people will put process first. And my belief is you can have a flawless process. And if you put bad people in it, they will wreck your process. <laughs> so it's it's technically not flawless. And then unfortunately, the ultimate one is when people put profits before anything else. I, I just believe that's a bad recipe. You always put people first. So our biggest challenge will always be finding great people to, to join our tribe. So say you're looking for a new hire or say it's a company you're interested in investing in. You're breaking down the people. What are you looking for? What has to stand out for you? Culture, culture, fit and skill set. It's, it's a one for one. So we have a deep uh, values and principles, our, our culture doc that, that we live by. You know, some, I'll throw a few of them out there. Number one uh, of our values, results. Number two, people. Number three, learning. Constantly, we, we want to continue to learn some of our principles. We before me, we all eat the same dirt, ask questions. So we're looking for true culture fits and we're looking for the skill set. It, it's a one for one. But in many cases, we believe that if we can find a culture fit, we can teach the skill set depending on the role within the company. So, it, yeah, uh, we, we live by our, our culture doc, our, our Bible, if you will. And that and that's the the measurement of what we're looking for when we bring people in. How that culture is created. How have you arrived to this point? Are are there other businesses, other leaders you've looked to to understand what they've built with their culture, or is this something that you've kind of just adapted on your own? So so they had the skeleton of the culture doc here when when I started. I was actually very fortunate that when I was at the software company, it was really the first time I was introduced to the word culture. Before that, I really didn't know what, what culture was. I was in you know big companies, Wachovia, Countrywide, and it was, and I was in sales. So again, it was every man, woman for themselves, go be number one. And so I really didn't have a had no clue about culture. So when I was at the software company, it really was my first introduction to culture and understanding how important it is to an organization. So when I got here to, to scribe, it, it really was eye-opening to see that, yes, you do want to build a company on culture first, because that's going to be the, the unbreakable foundation of the company to be able to scale. Much of that is still a learning process. What are companies doing right? What are companies doing wrong? What decisions are they making? I, I'll put this out there and I know I'm probably gonna piss off some more people, but when you look at publicly traded companies with the exception of maybe 10, I find it very offensive that you have these publicly traded companies that have the audacity to say that they put their people first 
when they're, they're lying, they know damn well what they're putting first are shareholders. Second to shareholders are customers. Their actual people, the employees, they're number three. But they don't admit that. And, and I think that's a travesty because the decisions that many of those companies are making are based off of shareholder value and moving the stock price, not the actual uh, putting people, their, their people first. And I, I just think that's ridiculous that they won't come out and admit it. And like I said, there's there's a handful of companies that don't uh, believe that. Uh, Jeff Bezos being one, go back to that first uh, annual letter he wrote. And he just basically said, hey, I'm running this the way I run it. Love it, leave it, whatever. But this is how it's going. So you, you have about 15 companies out there that run that way. But I just pay attention and I learn from others' mistakes. And in my opinion, success is pretty easy. You R&D it, rip off and duplicate it. If somebody <laughs> else is doing it, okay, what they do, how can I do it better? <laughs> you, you mentioned some titans of industry. You mentioned Ford, Rockefeller earlier. When, when you're looking at legends like this, are you studying mostly historical figures or are you also studying people who are currently doing it today? Combination. I believe that history does have a, a way of repeating itself. And I don't know that he would like this comparison, but when I look at Jeff Bezos, in my opinion, there's a lot of Rockefeller in Jeff Bezos. When you look at just how he is dictating the market, buying everything, looking to change damn near every piece of retail and AWS, just Whole Foods. So I, I look at modern day leaders. I look at past leaders. I look at leaders who have made mistakes. I look at boards who have made mistakes. Uh, I'll, I'll share a good one with you here. Uh, Lands Inn is a catalog company. They used to be owned by Sears. So that kind of lets you know what you're working with here. And they're based out of some small uh, city in Wisconsin. Well, they needed a new CEO. So this is a catalog company that was once owned by Sears, catalog company, meaning they sell their high volume item is uh, school uniforms. And so they go out and they hire a CEO. She used to be the CEO of uh, the, the vice president of Ferrari, and she used to be the vice president of uh, Dolce & Gabbana. So she's used to high end. Well, they hire her and I'm like, okay, she doesn't know their audience. That's that's problem number one. Problem number two is they allow her to commute from New York to Wisconsin. Well, she's not bought into the culture. Why these people are never going to follow you as their leader because you feel that you're too good to even live in the same city with them. And so when I look, I studied mistakes like that. And in my opinion, she was let go 16 months later, obviously, because shit didn't work out. But in my opinion, not only should she have been fired, but the whole damn board should have been fired because they made the decision to hire her. So I look at mistakes like that and I say to myself, OK, how can I ensure I don't make that type of uh, decision or, or mistake? Yeah, that case study with Lance and one I'm unfamiliar with. But that's very interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. You've talked a lot about different people throughout the years. You've learned from what you've been able to pull from. I think you're really good at spotting different trends. What shifts in different marketplaces are you seeing today that are just kind of disrupting businesses in general? Oh, man, it's. 
I, you know, there's this big thing around retail where everyone feels that Amazon has killed retail. Amazon has killed retail. Don't get me wrong. Amazon had a hand in it. But some of the decisions, when you look at, at some of the retail that has gone under, it wasn't just Amazon. It was leadership not pivoting, leadership not paying attention. You know, when you're attached to a mall and that becomes the staple, you know, one of the, the, the big pieces where I feel Kohl's was successful or still is successful, they did not attach themselves to a mall. You don't have to go to the mall to get to Kohl's. And so if you're attached to a mall, AKA, uh, you know, Sears, uh, it's, it, you, that's the only reason you need to go there. And it, it's retail hurt themselves because they did not pivot. And when you look at some of the retailers who have done a great job, look at Costco. They've done a phenomenal job at, at pivoting. So much so when, when I say who's the biggest seller of organic food, almost everyone says Whole Foods. No, it's Costco. And a lot of people don't know that. And so when you look at their model themselves, it's it's fascinating to me. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but work with me here. No, I love it. If you, if you look at Costco, if you took out the snack bar, the pharmacy, and gas, Costco would be a Fortune 150 company just with those things. So when you look at the model of they put all of the fresh food in the back, they know exactly what they're doing. They're making you have to walk through the whole store to get what you came for, but you're going to walk past everything else. The other piece that I think is fascinating about Costco is even if you go buy your organic groceries in the back of Costco, when you're coming back through, you're going to buy the big barrel of cheese puffs because this is America and, and we want to tell ourselves we're eating healthy and we're going to the gym. But damn it, I still need my cheese puffs. So they're selling both things at the same time. And, and I just find their whole uh, model uh, fascinating on, on how they, they operate. So, yes, I just I love to study business. I love to study trends. And like you said, the, the J.P. Morgans, the Rockefellers. How, how all of these things came to be and really look at what are some of those same trends here in, in our economy today that, that you can make some similarities around some of those companies as well. Oh, I love hearing this perspective. I'm glad you brought that up. I wanna know one final thing. Young entrepreneurs, young people getting started, what's final parting advice you have for them? How can they best get ahead be be willing, especially in your youth. Maybe maybe you're not married yet. Maybe you don't have children yet. Go all in. You know, that is the time period, in my opinion, when you do work the, the 50, 60 hours a week. You do put in the, the necessary study. And it is don't don't get me wrong. We all want to have fun, but stop watching the damn Game of Thrones. Stop binge watching. It's offensive that that's even a term in our society. I, I find it just offensive that we as a society, we will put th this is mind blowing. People will stand in line 24 hours overnight for the new iPhone that does two new things than the shit that you already have that does. And, and here's what what's actually just wrong we will put the person on camera who comes out of the, the Apple store first 
And this person is just, you know, they're holding the phone up, they're smiling. And I'm saying to myself, okay, you damn fool. You just stood in line for 24 hours and you spent a thousand dollars for the new iPhone and you're smiling. Why? And, and so I, I just put your priorities in order. If you want to achieve your dreams and goals, balance your life, not your work life balance, balance your life because work is part of your life. So if you want to achieve your dreams and goals, carve out what you need to do to do so and go for it. Go all in. JT McCormick, president and CEO of Scribe Media. The quote that really lasted a long impression with me was fail fast is ridiculous. Learn faster. I absolutely love that. Your book, I Got There, How a Mixed Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty, and Abuse to Arrive at the American Dream. JT, where can the listeners best stay connected with you? Oh man, the, the best place is probably LinkedIn, but if you email me direct, I do my best to answer all my emails. You can email me at jt at scribemedia.com, but LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. And, and you know, because you made a, a, a point of this, you know, the youth and entrepreneurs who are starting out, I, I will also point this out to you if you give me a second here. There is no success without sacrifice. And what I mean by that is we live in an Instagram world where people see a picture of the big house, the cars, the money that takes sacrifice. Even at its highest level, people will look at LeBron James, LeBron James. They see the hundred million dollars a year. They see the NBA championships. They see him on TV. But LeBron James sacrifices when he's on an 11 game road trip. He doesn't get to see his son's basketball game. He doesn't get to see his daughter's e event that, that he's missing. So at the highest levels, you have to sacrifice in order to achieve success. And the last piece that I'll give to this, if you look at President Bill Clinton, if you look at President George Bush, and if you look at President Obama, all three of those gentlemen went into office and they had small, uh, they had young daughters, they had young children. They sacrificed in order to achieve the highest level of success. There is zero success without sacrifice. There is no success without sacrifice. JT McCormick, bring the fire as expected. I appreciate you joining us on What Got You There. Man, humbled and flattered. I appreciate it, sir. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. This is just in time to purchase the perfect holiday gift for your loved one or even treat yourself to a new wardrobe for the New Year's goals. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in-one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. 
head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested, there's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.